Before we get started with this episode of American Rabbi Project, a few quick things. First of all, if you like what you're hearing, please consider donating to this podcast. You can do so by going to my website, rabbiproject.com, and clicking on the Donate tab. Also, I am officially on the speaking circuit, so to say. If you're interested in having me speak to your group of any size, please shoot me an email, justin at rabbiproject.com. Once again, justin at rabbiproject.com. And of course, I can do virtual presentations. Finally, everyone interviewed for this podcast speaks solely for themselves. Welcome to American Rabbi Project, the podcast about American Judaism from the perspective of rabbis across the country. I'm Justin Regan. There's this iconic line from the original Star Wars movie where Luke Skywalker feels the presence of the Force for the first time. He excitedly tells his master, Obi-Wan Kenobi, who responds by saying, You've just taken your first steps into a much larger world. And that's podcasting in a nutshell. It has been one year since I returned from my around-the-country road trip. It started pretty simple, talk to a bunch of rabbis, and have fun. Sure enough, with every interview, with every new task required for production, and with every new idea presented to me, the world got bigger and bigger. It's something that gives me a great sense of purpose, or dread, really depends on the minute you ask me, and it does fluctuate from minute to minute. But regardless of how I'm feeling, the objective is always clear. Don't stop collecting interviews, because the only way to face an ever-expanding world is to keep moving. Maryland. Strong deeds, gentle words. This great sense of purpose slash dread was quite helpful when I returned to the East Coast in May for a bar mitzvah slash business trip. It fueled a 48-hour journalism binge, where I traveled from Boston to Northern Virginia collecting three interviews along the way. One of those was in the town of Potomac, Maryland, with Rabbi Haim Ovadia. My name is Haim Ovadia, born in Israel. I live in uh, America for the last 20 years. Most of my life, I worked, along other things, as a pulpit rabbi. Ovidia's held pulpits in places like Jerusalem, Israel, Bogota, Colombia, and in the U.S. in Los Angeles, and most recently, Maryland. It's not just a gig he's done around the world. It's really something that runs through his blood. He's part of a lineage of rabbis that goes back many generations to Iraq. Jews have been in that country since, well, since it was Babylonia. But similar to the Jews of Egypt, life got more dangerous for the Jews of Iraq in the mid-20th century. Hostile leaders took over, deadly pogroms occurred, and people were detained and tortured, accused of being Israeli spies. Today, the Jewish population of Iraq is pretty much non-existent. Almost everyone else left. That includes Ovidia's family, and it was his grandfather who helped to cultivate his love of Judaism. We would also have conversations, I remember at the young age, about divine justice and the creation, God, and, you know, our purpose in the world. And he had a very interesting uh, take on the world. As I said, he came from a line of rabbis. He decided not to become a rabbi, even though people refer to him as hacham, which means rabbi in, in the in the Sephardic tradition. He was a social activist. He was involved in the Israeli, in the underground before the establishment of the state. Then he established a, a center for occupational rehabilitation to help people with disabilities. 
mental and physical. His motto was a verse from Job that says, My creator, creator me and him in the same womb. When he talks about people with lesser opportunities. So he instilled in me this kind of, uh, I, I would say it's a drive for tikkun olam, for making the world a better place. I know it's a, it's banal, sort of, but I believe it's possible. If you really work on it, you can make a little change and you never give up. Ironically, it was his grandfather who also warned Ovidia against becoming a rabbi. Later on, I understood he meant don't become a pulpit rabbi. It's quite a tiresome uh, job. Ovidia has moved away from synagogue work. He now writes for several Jewish publications, gives talks around the world, and also performs and preserves Iraqi Jewish songs. Ovidia says the main focus of his work is still educating people. Today, his community is mostly online instead of at a brick-and-mortar shul. He focuses on teaching halacha, or Jewish law, he says he approaches it from a broad spectrum with the goal of making it relevant to modern times. In my opinion, a lot of the people who I communicate with are people that I call victims of religious abuse. I don't mean physical abuse, even though that is also part of it, but also it's their victim of religious indoctrination. So on one hand, you could have people who grew up in Orthodox households and were educated with guilt and shame and fear and... They they don't feel connected to the work they are doing, but they're doing it out of inertia and fear. And then there are people who grew up in non-Orthodox households and don't feel connected because they because of the way it was portrayed on the other side. With throughout through my work, I feel I created a bridge because I have the full spectrum. I have Haredi rabbis in Israel who communicate with me and some of my alumni and, and colleagues who are reform and reconstructionists who speak to me also about halakha, and we are all engaged in, the, in a dialogue. And the other thing that I see myself doing is that I work with the fringes. I work with the people who are not identified, and I came to the conclusion that the fringe is much greater than the center. Ovidia thinks it's important to set the table for this majority fringe. He says some people get too bogged down by certain rules and customs and don't look at the bigger picture of following halacha. The Torah is a spectrum. Is a is a, is a there's a full body of uh, of halacha. There are many different details, and for some reason, people cling to those things that are highly visible, and also sort of easy to take upon yourself. Let's say when someone decides to become religious officially and. He starts keeping Shabbat or wearing a hat or a kippah or eating kosher. Those are physical things that the community sees and, and says, oh, now now you're religious. But what about business ethics? Nobody knows how you run your business. What about civility? Does anyone know how a person treats his family at home, education, mutual respect, etc.? So all these things are part of our observance. And he says this style of education helps keep Judaism relevant to more people. When people choose what to do, they not only feel that they understand it, they also feel that they own it and they connect to what they do. So I think it gives people a greater sense of connectedness in general to the Judaism and tradition. But definitely I'm, I have to be, I'm very careful not to use the term Kirov. I'm not doing Kirov. Kirov is a term which connotes distance. When I say I'm I'm doing Kirov, it means I bring someone closer, closer to me, meaning I'm right and he's wrong. And I don't believe in that. I think that everyone has their own subjective truth 
that is correct in certain circumstances as long as they don't harm other people. And we have to respect that. For Ovidia, this concept of unity with many beliefs is partially inspired by his Sephardic upbringing. Similar to what Rabbi Albert Gabai said in the previous episode, denominations are not really a Sephardic tradition. While there is a wide spectrum of origins and ideas and levels of observance in the community, Ovidia says the synagogues are usually what many would consider orthodox. Categorizing by denomination is more of an Ashkenazi tradition. The uh, Sephardic community is characterized by always having this open-minded attitude towards the general culture. And that starts, I would say, in the 7th century already with the rise of Islam. Jews under Islam were less threatened. It was not as much as an unknown as Christianity not considered for them, not considered a pagan religion. There was no animosity the same way that existed in uh, Germany, for example, under Catholicism, where Jews were demonized. So Sephardim were relatively more open to, to the general culture, so they were not threatened by emancipation and enlightenment in the Ashkenazi communities because the tendency would be, was to be um, withdrawn and protected in a physical or spiritual ghetto the reaction to uh, to emancipation, to enlightenment, was a cultural shock. So it split. And this can be one of the causes of a lesser understanding of the Sephardim. Viewing Sephardic as a denomination as opposed to a much larger culture and geographical background can make it underrepresented and at times misunderstood. It's something Ovidia has had to deal with a good amount in his career, especially in the United States. They didn't know the diversity of the Jewish community. For example, when I lived in L.A., if I said that I was Sephardic, everybody was sure that I'm Persian. When I lived in Brooklyn, everybody thought I'm Syrian, but I'm neither. But I also uh, ran into outright racism in a, in a school that my son attended in L.A. that, ironically, was under the auspices of the Museum of Tolerance. The teacher spoke about the Sephardim all being ignorant and you know illiterate, insulted him in class, I when I brought it up to the principal, the principal says, yes, we know that there were some educated Sephardic people, but most of them didn't make it to Israel. And I was I was shocked at the time. But that, that's an extreme. That's an extreme. I am familiar with the with the Ashkenazi culture. I'm very, very familiar. Like, you know, I know Yiddish. I I know the Ashkenazi tunes, the Nusa Fort Filot. And I think that we all have value. And I think there is still a long uh, path in terms of education, educating people to understand the diversity within our culture. For Ovidia, some factors that have caused this disconnect are more rooted in history. One was the uh, the period of colonialism and imperialism, that because that divided the world in general to east and west. So this, the Jews within the within the Sephardic world were grouped with the with the local populations. Another rift came in the 1950s with the establishment of the State of Israel. Not everybody was on that on that page, but a lot of the the founders of the state believed, and I'm saying it as a Zionist, as someone who was in, you know, my family was involved in that. But for many people, the idea was we are building a new Europe in the Middle East, and therefore we need European Jews. And I think that also created later on political problems, geopolitical problems, because there's there was not enough dialogue or not a deep dialogue 
between Israel and the surrounding cultures. Because of that, Jews of the of the Middle East and North Africa did not feel welcome in Israel at that time. But I think that after the 1970s, a slow change is coming. Meanwhile, Ovidia thinks some things that used to unite Jews are outdated, like unity in facing a common enemy. Now that places like the U.S. are relatively safe for Jews, it creates tension between those that want to open up more to the surrounding culture and those who worry this could lead to assimilation and damage the Jewish identity. I think that the people who are afraid of the freedom in the country are people who don't have a positive reason to be Jewish, but rather it's all in the negative. Mainly the Orthodox rabbis, the Orthodox leadership, I don't think that they realize that we're not in exile anymore, that we're not in this mentality of diaspora, that people are not after us to destroy us. They, they, they are happy in a way, uh, ironically. Every time that there's an anti, anti-Semitic uh, event, they say, you see, we told you, you know, have to be careful, you have to... But it's really, there's no, there's no comparison between what is happening now and what we lived in the past. And I think that's what we miss in our education. You want to get people excited about being Jewish. Why are you Jewish? I asked my student in high school, shall have it in LA one time, uh, to write a letter to a non-Jewish friend and convince them to become Jewish. So this is an Orthodox school. The kids answered. They looked at me shocked. They said, we're suffering enough as it is. You want us to bring someone else into the mix? He says making Judaism more exciting involves more outreach, even to non-Jews and especially on college campuses. Any other any other religion, you know, they have booths where you can come up and ask questions about that religion. If you come up to the Jewish booth and you say, I want to learn about Judaism, the first question they will ask you, are you Jewish? And if you say, I'm not, I say, okay, you have all these other possibilities. I think that college is the time where people are searching for meaning, they're searching for spirituality. Why not teach them? If they decide to uh, embrace Judaism, beautiful. And if not, at least they will know something about it. Ovidia says this style of proactive education can also help community members in interfaith marriages. Like other rabbis interviewed for this podcast, he's not against it, but he is hesitant about kids growing up with multiple religious identities. That is, that is where we have to really invest our, our effort, is it education and understanding what is it that Judaism has to give. And in the past, there were also cases, uh, communities where there was were great numbers of uh, intermarriage, as they call interfaith marriage, as we call it today. And the attitude of the rabbis back in the day was, when the couple is willing to embrace Judaism, we have to help them as much as possible because we want to think about the future uh, generations. So the idea is, again, not to reject people, try to make them feel comfortable as much as possible. It's one of the many factors affecting American Judaism today. I went further into this topic with Ovidia by asking him what he considers to be positive and negative factors for Jews in America. He says a major positive is the success Jews have had. Jews are high achievers. They, I think that it was bred into us both because of the values of the Torah and because of our history. We always knew that maybe sometimes we'll have to peck and move on. So our parents instilled in us education is the most important thing. Your knowledge, your this is what is going to help you when you're stuck. And that is a positive thing, that Jews are, are educated, they are willing to learn, and they are willing to be involved. On the other hand, so some of the negatives are that, like I said before, people, sometimes Jews tend to keep their t- 
talent and knowledge within the Jewish community. We have to open it up. I think that uh, even in the way that we are, you look at the Jewish map in America, there used to be a time where Jews lived in small communities all over the country, and now there are several large concentration. Ovidia sees this in comparison to other countries he's lived in, like Israel. He says Israel has greater Jewish diversity and more openness amongst people, as well as a healthy dose of what he calls brutal honesty. Ovidia says in America, Jews can be more closed off. We have to be more involved. I think that, in a way, our private education is also a problem. My kids are in a private school. My wife teaches there. And it's sort of it's, it's expected of you. It, it, people would be shocked if I put my kids in, pri- in in the public school. But I think that maybe the the great the next great effort of the Jewish community in general would be to do away with private schools for everyone. That if they because if they were, we only had public schools, those who care about education and all the efforts would go to all public schools. The liberty of having private schools sort of undermines the public schools. So, but this is one side of what could be negative, and the other negative about with American uh, Judaism, I think, is this uh, divisiveness between the denominations. For Ovidia, a greater understanding amongst denominations is critical, especially when it comes to having a greater understanding and welcoming atmosphere for LGBTQ Jews. One of the things we really need to do is started start having a dialogue between rabbis of different denominations. When I say dialogue, I don't mean the cozy get-togethers. I'm part of that. You know, we get together, hear a lecturer, have a cup of tea or pizza, whatever, and move on. No, we, we need to get together in a way that could change things, can make decisions. For example, when we talk about uh, the LGBT community, especially the problem is for a gay Orthodox men, the because they are also burdened with some kind of a prohibition when this their problem is presented to the non-orthodox communities they say okay so come over to us we are welcoming my argument is that that's not what they're interested in they grew up in a certain tradition they like it you we have to help them whatever denomination we are help them be comfortable within their denomination ovidia says this is also the case involving women in the orthodox world Traditionally, women in Orthodox communities can't be rabbis or help count towards forming a prayer group or minion, among other things. But that doesn't always mean the answer for those who want change is to leave. Orthodoxy itself can be its own spectrum within the wider Jewish spectrum. Ovidia says he wants it to be more egalitarian. I think it's the, the, the current approach of the Orthodox community is myopic. They don't have or they're not willing to apply a historical perspective and see how the trend of women's involvement has grown over time, from the first woman to be ordained as a rabbi to the growing number of rabbis, women rabbis that we have today, that will just keep growing. And maybe it will lead to another rift within the Orthodox community. So, But it will happen eventually. But the other side of my perspective goes back. I go back in history and I look at great leaders that we had from the biblical ones like Miriam and Devorah and others, but also some that have been forgotten, like the wife of Dunash ben Labrat, who was a poet in the 9th century. She was also a poet and a scholar. In the 10th century in, in Baghdad, the daughter of the Rosh Hashiva, Rabbi Shmuel Levi, 
was a teacher and a scholar and sort of a Rosh Hashiva herself. And when she died, the poets wrote eulogies praising her as a wise woman who was innovative, meaning not she didn't only teach what she learned from her father. Same thing later on in the, in Kurdistan or northern Iraq in the 17th century, a famous woman by the name of Osnat Barazani was a rabbi in Rosh Hashiva after passing away of her father and husband. So what we're doing today, or some people are doing today, is ignoring both the past and the future. I think it maybe it will be for them a rude awakening, but change is coming. Rabbi Haim Ovidia is an agent of change, and he's dedicated his life to helping others grow in their Judaism, at pulpits all over the world and now all over the web. It's a spark that started way back when he was a little kid, learning from his grandfather. And I recall... One one speech he gave in the synagogue when I was maybe seven years old, it was Yom Kippur, in uh, so nineteen seventy two, in Israel, and he says, he told people, I know that people watch TV on Shabbat. He didn't rebuke them. He didn't say, no, you should not watch TV like you know a lot of uh, Orthodox people do. He said, I understand why you would want to do that, but you know what? I have an, a favor to ask of you. Don't switch channels too much. It was sort of a validation you know you're not you're not a sinner you're a good person what you're doing is okay but even within what you do you could give a special respect for shabbat so i thought to me it was a brilliant thought of you could find your judaism at any level anywhere whatever you do and we don't label and ostracize each others each other so that that for me was uh his legacy a few hours after my conversation with rabbi ovidia I was on a plane heading back home. I had three more interviews on my computer and on my recorder's SD card, and also on a separate flash drive, each in separate bags. I like using redundancy and protecting sound files, although in retrospect, I should have also emailed them to a friend just in case the plane went down. Anyway, I realized that with this most recent trip, something had changed. I was crisper in my interviews, more aware of what I wanted to find out, and more confident in my abilities. When I was on the road trip, I carried myself as a professional, but now I was starting a new adventure and stepping further into the much larger world. American Rabbi Project Maryland Strong Deeds, Gentle Words was written and produced by me, Justin Regan. If you like what you're hearing, please consider donating to my project. You can do so by going to my website, rabbiproject.com, and clicking on the Donate tab up top. Thank you very much to Derek Pova for handling the web stuff, which takes a true Jedi to handle. Also thanks to Jeremy Crone, Sarit Rathbone, Beth Vanderstoop, Dylan Abrams, and my parents for the assistance. You can contact me by emailing justin at rabbiproject.com. Once again, justin at rabbiproject.com. You can also find me on social media at facebook.com slash rabbiproject and on Twitter with the handle at rabbiproject. And until next time, shalom and safe driving.